This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know it, I know. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Only Friends Podcast. We have a very special episode today. It's just me and Guapo behind the uh, the the editing studio, if you will. Uh, we're joined by two very special guests that I will introduce momentarily. Before we get to that, I got to give a huge shout out to our sponsors of the week, Underdog Fantasy. You can check them out at underdogfantasy.com or you can hit hashtag Underdog Fantasy in the chat to get that link. They're currently doing a double up uh, bonus. So deposit 100, get 100. Um, you missed the best ball, unfortunately. I got to tell you, that's that's the, the contest of the year as far as I'm concerned. But there's a lot of other stuff going on. So be sure to hop in there. Don't forget to use the sign up code S4Y. That will get you your deposit double up to $100. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code. Must be 18 and older and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms and conditions apply. Concerned with your play, call 1-800-522-4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org. All right. With that read out of the way, let's get into the meat and potatoes. Um, we're joined by two special guests today that uh, are going to be having a spirited debate upon something that was kind of brought up publicly on the Bally's Big Bet stream uh, earlier this year, we covered a heads-up match between Brown and Paint, where it ultimately went to arbitration because one of the members was able to accrue a bunch of data on his opponent by using his former coach who had his databases. That debate was then brought up between Kier and Chewy. I think you got a clip, Guap. wrote on the, the scandal between... Um, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Were you involved in that? I know. Yeah, I was. Who were you? Uh, I, I had money. I had money involved. You had money on both, you said? We, we both gave statements on that, actually. I, had, I, I know you gave a statement. We both did. I did. I was actually... You were betting on the guy that got screwed, or the guy that was screwing? Um, bet on the guy that got screwed, didn't you? Well, it depends who got screwed. Oh, fair enough. I mean, because, like, I feel like there's an argument that both players got screwed in some ways. Yeah, I suppose that's... It's a, it's a fairly nuanced thing. I thought it was really fascinating, like, the nuance and, like, how some people thought that the advantage was greater and some people thought the advantage was lesser. Jeremiah... All right, now that we've kind of laid out the the basis of where this conversation began, what I wanted to get into is an ethical discussion around uh, mass data analysis. So what we're going to do in this conversation is we're going to outline what mass data analysis actually is, what are the ethics behind utilizing this data, behind sourcing it, uh, behind following TOS, and weaponizing it versus other players. We'll also debate whether or not uh, this actual scenario between Brown and Paint was potentially unethical in and of itself. So I'm joined today by one, the one and only Lucky Chewy, who you just recently saw in that clip, as well as owner and founder of Detox Poker, Nick Howard. Detox Poker? I don't know. What is it? Detox what? 
Poker Detox. Poker Detox, <laughs> my bad. The P. Oh, that's right. It's the 6 9, not the 9 6. No, it's the 9 6, not the 6. What is it, man? Good to be back, man. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me you weren't thinking yin yang 6 9 whenever you made that logo. The logo was an oversight, which was. <laughs> brought to our attention later it's actually really bad in french i won't explain but it means a very very dirty bad word there. okay so detox poker it is we're switching the name right here right now you heard it here first uh chewy you're also launching a new company tell us a little bit about octopi yeah um it's first and foremost a poker tech company we're very focused on education uh there's a strong social component to it so a lot of interactivity between users um ability to yeah share hands and simulations and whatnot uh yeah it's it's very exciting it's honestly oh. the coolest thing i've ever done you'll be able to share data you say ah yes there will be sharing of data <laughs> touche sir what a fascinating platform uh yeah we kind of we when you guys launched what was it tuesday this week mm, yeah that sounds right it's kind of yeah. all a blur but yes. um i even though i had had discussions with you and victoria in the past about like what this was going to be i i still don't fully have a grasp on the over overall vision so i was excited to see you guys launch in beta right now am i correct in that people can just sign up to be a part of the beta test moving forward yep and we're slowly letting people in basically the studio side is what's available right now so that's okay. more of the um hand history analysis uh sharing of hands sim type stuff mm -hmm. uh poker base on the forum which is more marketplace for selling really anything poker related okay uh, will launch later this year november or december okay so a one-stop shop, if you will. A one-stop shop. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about Poker Detox, Nick. Sure. Detox was created back in 2017 um, as an advancement on the research I had started to do manually through Ignition Clairvoyant Hand Histories. For those of you who remember that time, it's still occurring, but... Ignition was the first site to release hand histories with whole cards exposed 24 hours after each session. At some point in my frustration plateauing at high stakes, I got the crazy idea that our strategic framework was wrong. Nobody was really helping anyone with the type of solver work we were doing because it wasn't practical enough. And I decided to go in and start looking at real hands. Started to see a lot of suspicious bluffing occurring in the pools and got the crazy idea that we needed to um, basically accumulate data to plot it and for the first time be able to objectively quantify what the hell was going on relative to equilibrium which we now had vision over in light of the solvers solver era bubble burst around 2015 all of the mass data analysis first prototypes began around 2016 2017 uh, my brother patrick howard came on board around 2018 and basically blew the whole thing open. Um, he was able to jailbreak hand to note, get the database over 100 million hands, and at that point, the entire game tree starts to light up with just a ton more vision over nodes that require significant sample size in order to see how the population is playing. So that's the methodology that our uh, company is based on. We basically train players through protocols that are churned out through this back-end engineering work where we look at the sims, get the equilibrium strategy, overlay the population analysis on top of it, and we start to see where the population is exploitable. Good enough for now? Yeah, cool. that's great. Um, 
I guess let's before we get into this, uh, you could just speak to how you guys source this data, and then we can kind of get into a discussion as far as like what that means. How does Poker Detox source the data? Yeah, like how did you get how did you get the hands? Uh, we purchased the third party vendors. There's a few of them out there. I'm not sure which ones we currently use. At this stage, our master database has somewhere near 500 million hands. I would say. We try to only use more recent ones because it's just more relevant and trends change, although not that much. But I would say 200 million active hands at least are 2021 and later. Okay. So yeah, to answer your question concisely, third-party uh, purchasing. And then because we run a fairly large stable, we also have the opportunity of combining the hands from our players if they wish to deposit them and do research with that too. Okay, and then I guess last question is, where are these hands being sourced from as far as uh, player pools? Like, are there specific sites or is it just an aggregate across the board? Most of the hands come from PokerStars. I believe it still is that way. In the early days, PokerStars was either the one selling the most hands or most of the hands being played online were being played on Stars. Mm -hmm. So they just had a larger uh, sample size. So yeah, for our first prototypes at least, it was mostly PokerStars hands that these that this database was sourced from. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, Chewy, why don't I bring you in? Uh, tell me a little bit about how this discussion with Kier came about and uh, where you two ultimately started to pull the conversation. Yeah, so he actually just brought it up. He, as you, uh, if you, if you watched the whole thing, uh, would have seen he was friendly with um, Brown. Yeah, Brown. And he was very privy to the whole scenario uh, with him and Paint. Uh, he was quite interested in my perspective because I did write a statement that uh, basically summarized my thoughts on the matter at the time that it was happening before a decision was made. Uh, and then from there, because you know the, I guess the allegations against Paint or more so his coach, um, are very much in the data mining. Uh, discussion, although it's the closest thing you can relate it to, but it's really not data mining, right? It's just access to a database of his own played hands, which is wildly different because you're seeing his mucked guards where, right. yeah, you don't know what he folds if you're just data mining. So right. it's quite a bit worse in that sense. Yeah. Um, and then the, the discussion kind of shifted to data mining generally after that and our differing perspectives on, I guess, what is acceptable and Fair, I yeah, suppose. I'll uh, I'll kind of stick a pin in on the major detail there, which is I think the the exposure to all folded hands. Yeah, uh, and just to outline mm -hmm. as far as like what happened in the paint brown situation. Um, so it was uh, Cole Keenan's coach Thomas Pinnock of Zenith Poker, who was previously uh, I believe Brown's coach. If if I have that, I believe correct. that is correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so and I'll just say, Cole, yeah, Cole is paint, paint in this correct. discussion. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, so he basically had access to uh, Brown's entire database from the time that they worked together. Uh, I believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, maybe 10 or 20K hands, something along those lines. And it obviously wasn't much heads up. Uh, so it is notably different of a game format. But I thought it was quite a bit more. Uh, it might be. I thought it was like a quarter million hands. I could be wrong. Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe it was only... Uh, uh, 10 or 20 uh, a heads up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they came from heads up. 
Um, but anyway, this this seems like it was a database that consisted of uh, hands from 1KNL all the way to 5KNL, heads up and ring spanning through 20, 2020 and 2021. Um, ultimately, it went to arbitration. Uh, it appeared as though Zenith had some skin in the game. They, they stood to benefit monetarily from the heads up match. He provided that entire database to his student uh, and it was weaponized against Brown. It ended up going to arbitration uh, and it was voided as if it had never been played. That's what everybody ultimately ruled upon. Um, so they were, or, uh, Cole was ordered to refund Brown's losses. Uh, all sides, side bets, including the 10K side bet on the match and private, 30 bar, private third party bets uh, were nullified and voided. Um, the rake was split, I believe. Uh, and then, you know, the match was basically concluded and that was the end of, end of all that. Um, what I understand, having like dug into it pretty deeply uh, and spoke with some of the people who were even in the arbitration, uh, some of the biggest sticking points were the aspect of having access to his folded hands yeah, uh, and all of that extra information that you wouldn't necessarily get data mining. So uh, I bring that back up because I think it's important for us moving the discussion forward that we get some solid ground on uh, defining specific terms. So... First and foremost, mass data analysis, MDA, moving forward. Uh, I think that what we're talking about in a general sense is always going to be scraped data, which will not or will disclude folded hands. Uh, that's kind of like an extra layer of privileged information. So generally, the sourcing for this is going to be hands that you acquire through playing in the pool yourself, uh, hands purchased from a larger pool database like uh, Nick was referencing uh, detox utilizes hands shared among a small collective also similar to what nick was referencing and then finally hands that are scraped through a data scraper and uh you know i can remember pre-black friday this was a big thing i don't know if you guys remember poker table ratings yeah yeah, I um, do. yeah it was one of the major sites out there they were constantly uh data scraping all cash game hands uh basically on all the major sites so back then sites weren't as strict in policing and they were able to accrue millions and millions and millions of hands, and you had the ability to purchase these hands uh, if you so cho chose to do so. Now, I do want to add the caveat that pre-Black Friday, solvers didn't exist, at least not in the public domain. So accumulating this data certainly was powerful, but it was only as powerful as your ability to use a HUD. So it could really only be weaponized in the sense of you were able to see HUD stats based off of uh, the data that you acquired, but you weren't really able to do much i mean we didn't we had guesses as to what good hud stats were back then but nobody knew what was optimal obviously yeah, that's true um so it was probably a lot less potent back then i'll say one thing um the hand shared amongst a small collective that will contain mucked cards right so that that's true that gives an extra sort of and i think that's where uh i mean a lot of learning happens right like you mm -hmm. see you review hands with your friends and you're like oh wow you folded the turn this hand or whatever right or like fall down here and you know you see their insight oh that you know i think that people over bluff under bluff whatever yeah and you also get an insight to your personal collective like if you start to trend a certain way right uh perhaps that's something that can be utilized into optimizing your training and things of that nature mm. um second thing i want to get out of the way is uh the stance of sites major sites on this uh so as far as tos's go um every major site that we could come across from gg to stars to Iggy to WSOP uh, to um, 
ACR. ACR, yeah, that was the final one. Uh, they all have very clear language that data mining in any capacity that we have outlined outside of HUD is strictly prohibited. Um, strictly. Well, you know, strictly in the sense that it's in the, it's in the contract. Uh, we, can, we can talk a little bit about their ability to actually police it as we dig into the conversation. Um, so they all have language that says, we consider this an unfair edge to gather data on, or information on other players, yada, yada, yada. But I couldn't really find anything as far as uh, punishment goes outside of them pointing to another point in their clause that says, like, when you commit a prohibited act, you may or may not face these certain consequences. Uh, I just wanted to get that out of the way so that we don't start debating back and forth, like, what is or is not the letter of the law. Um, and yeah, with that, I think we can dig in first to the, to the uh, paint brown controversy. So as far as TOS goes, uh, do we view this to be a breach? One person sharing uh, a private database with another? I think you need to be more explicit about what happened because that's that's not the entire extent of it from where I'm standing. Okay, I mean, you know more about it than me, but as far as I understand, this was a coach of one of the players who leaked the player's database to the opponent of the match. Well, the opponent officially hired that coach, whichever way you yeah wanna, you want to frame it. The coach complied. Yes, yeah, yeah. that to me is the ethical. Not breach. just complied, volunteered. Yeah, I, I don't. I would imagine there's probably not actually any line in the terms of service to account for this again right. the closest thing is data mining mm -hmm. um i think it probably should be against the terms of service but i don't think you could actually sift through it and find a conclusion for this very nuanced specific case yeah i kind of framed it that way because i think that this opened up a broader conversation about data mining right but the truth is this is kind of maybe a derivative thereof but not exactly anything remotely close to mda yeah it's it's much more targeted, right? It, this it is, is yeah. this is explicit private information that was shared between two parties who I'm sure if they had any sort of working agreement would be a breach of said contract. And that was one of the main points that I laid out in, in the statement I made. Um, I think the level of deception is more like you, know, you put a Trojan on someone's computer and you right. see their cards because you're just so clearly bypassing what is, in my eyes, deemed to be like a fair playing environment. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way that the opponent... Like, if, if that happened to Paint, he would feel wronged, right? Right. Yeah, how could he not? So Of course. So, uh, I guess that's the next thing that I want to try to take away from that specific heads-up match is, do we quantifiably agree that an edge is garnered by him having access to uh, his opponent's database, even if it isn't explicitly heads-up? Yes. If they're playing a heads-up match and none of the data garnered was heads-up, I mean, some of it was heads up, but I'm saying, like, do you think if 90% of the data was six max and 10% was heads up, do you think uh, there's an edge to be gained even looking at those stats from six max? What was the sample size? Uh, I believe it was relatively large. I thought it was a quarter million hands. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're probably right. I don't have it on hand because I only grabbed a couple de uh, screenshots from when we, when we went over this. But I'll I think ju I'll just say yes, and it's highly dependent on the sample size that was okay i do agree or i tend to agree that uh sample is pretty critical um obviously anytime you're working with data signal is very difficult to separate from noise and that becomes even more present when the sample is incredibly low that's not to say there isn't any value to it it's just that it's you know kind of diminishing but 
I want to just kind of lay out that clearly edges are gained by having some level of information that isn't uh, easily accessible through the naked eye, right? I mean, that's kind of the nature of poker. Yeah, I mean, that's why poker study can benefit you, right? Right. Yeah, I, I think that that's pretty fair. Um, okay, so with that kind of cemented in the ground where we, we have this starting jumping off point, uh, let's talk a little bit about then uh, MDA as a whole and how it fits into the online climate where clearly it's a breach of TOS, but on the other hand, it's obviously happening at scale. I mean, Nick isn't like on an island of people who purchase hands. Uh, we have an example of Upswing releasing a course by Kanu where, um, let me just read the tweet that he replied in, in line with so that I don't get it wrong. Um, he said, I, I basically said like, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear from, from Kanu as far as like the course he created, uh, how to play like Linus or, or something to that nature. And he said that Upswing gave me all of the mind hands for the course after I retired from playing. So the site T's and C's are no longer relevant for me. Uh, in my playing days, I was on the receiving end of MDA, but didn't hold it against anyone as I understood the reasons. So I'm not a strong advocate either way. Uh, I retired years ago. So I have, oh, sorry, I'm reading these in reverse order. Um, basically he said MDA is standard in many high level sports and games. Reason poker is an issue is because it's against T's and C's, uh, of some of these sites for their players to do it. And it makes unfair for those who don't. So I actually think that that's a, a pretty great place to start. Uh, if we look at something like baseball, football, basketball, whatever, everybody has tape and everybody can go watch that tape and it's league wide tape because it's in the public domain. So of course they all have analysts who are pulling as much data as they possibly can in uh, baseball. You know, we have spray charts for hitters. We have hot cold zones uh, as, as pitchers, you're always looking to attack those weaknesses as hitters. You're always looking to cover for them. And uh, baseball is the easiest example because it has the largest sample size. Right? Yeah, but this is a little bit different, right? Like that's more uh, taking hands from streams. I think data mining is a little bit more like, you know, having a drone fly over their practice or something. Okay, interesting you should say that because ah, yes. this is something that uh, was policed in the NFL not that many years ago. The Patriots really? were oh. found guilty of uh, <laughs> having spies. It specifically happened uh, going into the AFC Championship of, I, I, I'm not positive maybe 2008 That's but the a feisty move yeah so the patriots years later were found to have had uh access to the steelers practice and were basically collecting data on and what was the punishment uh money hmm. they didn't like strip them of anything or you know exclude them from the playoffs or anything too severe but uh they got hit in the pocketbooks uh maybe belichick got suspended for a couple games i can't really recall it was right around the same time deflate gate happened where Brady was accused of deflating footballs and got suspended for four games. Hmm. Um, but in any event, uh, I, I think that this is worth talking about because when we look at athletics, clearly there's edges to be gained by having more information over your opposition, especially in a, in a game that is largely dictated in the, in the near term by variance. Poker very much is the same. Where do we draw the line between ethically sourcing data versus uh, clearly taking unsavory edges? Uh, well, I think there's not an industry-wide consensus on this as evidenced by the discussion I had with Kier and the fact that we are all sitting here right now, right? Like there's yep. differing opinions. Um, I don't know, Nick, do you want to share some of your thoughts? I was under the impression we were all getting free Chipotle while we were here, so 
that yeah. was a big incentive for me. But Where's why, the don't block I, at? why don't I start by reading uh, PD's current position on where we draw the line? Okay. So that we can maybe establish start. establish yeah. some boundaries. I'm going to read it right off of uh, a statement that our engineers sent over. I, I think it's just better if I read it word for word. So I sent this to you, Matt, but basically this is it. Uh, currently, the engineers at Poker Detox are not running population analysis, MDA, on purchased hand samples in order to exploit specific opponents in the pool. This is currently where we draw the line. We will, however, look at, hand <clears throat> we will look at hands that were played at the same tables as other regs in order to identify effective counters for our players to use. So, Cliffs, we will not purchase hands and use them against opponents that we have not yet played with. But if a player says, I just played 100,000 hands, I want you to show me how specific regs in my pool are potentially countering me relative to their last 100,000 hand sample or just frequencies in general, we will perform that type of analysis. Uh, clarify that for me a little bit. What does that type of analysis look like? Is that looking at 100,000 100, hands that your student has played and analyzing where they're exploitable? Or is that looking at 100,000 hands of the population that they're playing in and figuring out where the counter exploits are coming from? The student would need to submit their own database okay. of their played hands in order for us to perform that research for them. Okay, and that, that's like really common in today's uh, coaching climate, I think, right? Database reviews? I think so. I haven't had it done. Or I haven't done it for others, but I, I believe so. It's so crazy. Uh, sorry, not to go on a tangent or cut you off, Nick, but uh, we're, we're so ancient compared to these young guys like Kier coming up. I mean, I've never, I've never had a database. I, I, like, I've never played online for a consistent enough period of time where I had a substantial database that I could look at and say like, okay, this is consistently like what I look like when I show up at the table. Um, my longest stretch of grinding was like 2009 to 2010. It was maybe four months. So I have no idea what this world looks like truly. Uh, I'm a little surprised that you never have either, but I realize now that if you're only playing US facing sites, it's very difficult to actually accumulate a database. Yeah, and I mean, I'm playing mostly tournaments. Um, right. I mean, I can review my own hands, right? And like yep. look and see like, you know, how am I doing in these different spots, like three bat pots or, you know, cutoff facing, whatever. It's, uh, you can drill down, but you know, it's the, the, the nuance is maybe a little bit lacking, especially in MTTs because everything's so varied yeah. where your stack depth is going to be so important. Yeah. I mean, it, still, it still can definitely help. It's a, use, right. it's a useful way. Very different though than looking at 200,000 hands of the exact same, uh, stack depth, you know, the, the, the fixed variables of, of cash, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so Nick, from your side, is this a lot of what I guess like detox is, uh, kind of programming in for is a lot of this database review, which is, I don't think there's any debate whether or not this stuff is ethical. Hiring a coach to look home through hands you've personally acquired seems completely reasonable. Yeah. If you're asking me if I think that it's ethical, I would say it's within the lines of where I plant my flag at least, but just to give a bit more context, because I think it's important for people who don't know what the limitations are. To understand what actually happens, I, I want to get a little bit tactical and just walk you through a process of what a top-level player would do 
using database analysis to incrementally iterate on their performance. So uh, there's actually a great podcast that just came out. Uh, Matt Marinelli, who was Detox's top privately contracted player of all time, is now America's number one on ACR. He just recently was uh, given that medal. Yeah, I watched it. It was great. He did a really great pod that was very tactical on mechanics of poker recently, and he detailed what his process is presently. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there, obviously, with what we do at Detox because Matt came up through our system. And basically, if I were to just summarize, you would go play 100,000 hands. You would submit your database to our expert analysts, or if you are doing it yourself because you're an expert analyst, you don't need to outsource. You would compare your frequencies in major nodes to uh, targets. Those targets could either be the targets you're trying to hit if you want to play a GTO system in that spot, or if you have population analysis, you could organize your targets to lean into the imbalances of the pools. So the point here is that you would have targets. And by having a 100,000 hand sample, it's usually sufficient to go to the depth that you need to go through in all major river nodes in order to get significant sample size. Sometimes you may need more than that if you're dealing with a very rare node, but it's usually sufficient for a decent review. Upon getting the feedback on the 100,000 hand report, you basically know where you're missing your targets. With software like hand to note the analyst can actually zoom in on certain nodes where your frequencies are perhaps drifting passive, and he says, look at what you're doing here. I can literally show you the portion of your range that you're overfolding in this node. Hand to note can do this at a glance at this point. You can pull up that the player's folding low pairs because you can just see it. And you could just set a very stable heuristic, like small blind first big blind, you should not be folding pairs versus small C bet. So you can make some pretty big gains pretty fast in your first couple iterations. Matt does a really fine job of talking about how he got real gritty with it. You know, he's pushing very small edges in the later iterations, and his process is probably certainly the most diligent I've ever seen of anyone I've trained. It's why it's no surprise he's in the position he's in today. But um, yeah, it, it really still is very gritty, but it allows, it allows you to go to very high resolution with specific leaks, with intentional targets that were pre-designed as a combination of uh, equilibrium strategies and population analysis overlaying onto it. Okay, so uh, building off of that, uh, what I'm mostly hearing is that uh, we're, we're looking at a large sample that is over an aggregate and isn't really aimed at any one in particular individual, but kind of takes advantage of some human tendencies that will show up in the data. So some real signals that you can kind of cling to and build a strategy or a counter strategy off of. Correct. And now let me make the opponent specific distinction. So if a player went and, and played 100,000 hands in a specific pool at a specific stake, that player could begin to do opponent specific review. There's even stats, filters, the verse hero filter, mm -hmm. for instance. You could see what your aggression success rate is in certain nodes versus particular players. And if you notice that there's a significant deviation over a statistically significant sample size versus a certain opponent, you can make some pretty strong assumptions that they have countered you relative to the rest of the population. A lot of what we do at the 
upper division of our company at this point is help players identify when players in their pool have countered them as quickly as possible so that they could tailor their aggression frequencies back into resilient territory or perhaps even hit them with a hard counter on the other side of the fence. Okay, I, I think all of that sounds pretty reasonable uh, as far as like not super great to me. Um, Chewie and I were kind of having this conversation off air and he, he kind of started with the premise of, I think we can all agree that there isn't anything unethical about accumulating data. And on the surface, uh, I think he's almost certainly correct. But viscerally, I, I kind of just like immediately delved into a place of uncertainty. Something about weaponizing it uh, at the really granular level where you're specifically targeting one opponent, um, perhaps in a small pool or something like that, feels like we're getting to the point of being predatory. And maybe that's the real distinction and maybe this isn't an ethical discussion around the actual data itself or how it's sourced or anything along those lines, but maybe this is really more of a question of at what point does it become predatory? Um, because I think where we can land is that this is un unpoliceable. Well, who, who determines like when it's predatory, right? Because like we had the discussion earlier about HUDs generally coming into existence. Yep. Some people might feel HUDs are predatory. That's, yeah. That ship has sailed though. Right. Well, yeah, that actually does bring up another good point, and this leads into the inabil uh, inability to police this. Uh, WSOP, for example, strictly no HUDs, mm -hmm. right? We both know people are using HUDs. Yeah, I've emailed support about it. I mean, right. I don't play that much on WSOP right now, so like whatever, but yeah. I, I think there's a problem when the rules are meant to establish fair play and the rules can't be enforced. Right. That is, that's, to me, that's an issue. And that's why I mentioned, I don't think there's anything inherently unethical about it if we look at it without the, the terms of service being in place. I just don't, like as, as Nick, you mentioned earlier, um, this is happening, and Matt, you mentioned it just on the, the intro, it's happening in all other industries. Right. So I, I see where the desire, I mean, it sounds super cool, like what you do at Detox, I mean, awesome. It is, I, I think... I think maybe where I get that visceral response is that in all other industries, there isn't, uh, there isn't an inherent dollar amount of risk attached to the people who are utilizing the data. So in other words, as a pitcher in the MLB, um, there isn't really any risk of money lost uh, if they don't use the data and there isn't really any risk of money lost if they use the data and were quote unquote caught. Are you sure? Well, not positive, but I guess, I guess the way I'm trying to, to draw the distinction here is that, uh, in poker, it's abundantly clear that those who do not utilize, uh, things that can make them less exploitable are losing the most. Yeah. I mean, I actually think it's, I could see at least how it would be fairly straightforward in baseball in much the same way. Like, if you don't understand how often a certain team or a certain player swings at a certain pitch, I mean, that's just going to affect your ability. That's going to affect your probably eventual salary, re-signing bonus, all that stuff, right? Yeah. And then if you take that drone approach, you know, try to film their practices and stuff and you get caught, then that's also going to hurt you. Well, it's going to hurt the owners. It's not going to hurt the actual players themselves. I'm okay, not sure that's, that's I'm not sure that's true because if Belichick flies a drone over the Steelers practice and then they end up embarrassing the Steelers in the Super Bowl. 
you don't think that's going to affect... I mean, this, ex this exact thing happened. Well, I think it clearly <laughs> affects the contracts of the players. If they underperform, it doesn't, the, yeah. it doesn't completely fall on the owners. Well, it will affect perhaps the contract of the Steelers players, but not of the Patriots. Right? They had the success. They benefited the most from, from acquiring the data. Yeah, so maybe I'm not understanding exactly well, what, I'm what saying you're saying is about like, the, the baseball analogy. Well, I guess what I'm saying is in, the, in poker, because it's zero-sum and we're utilizing actual dollars uh, as, as score, to, a, a way to keep score, it becomes a lot more predatory for those who uh, either opt out or abide by the rules if we want to keep it at a TOS level. Um, they are the ones who are being taken advantage of the most. And to me, that's when it becomes unsavory. Now, if we do what Chewy suggests and like we just strip this from TOS because we can't enforce it, it seems very unenforceable. Uh, By the way, I'm not sold on that. I just think it's a fair, definitely sorry. an idea that yeah. should be discussed. Yeah, yeah fair. I, sorry, yeah. I'm not trying to attach no, all, you to all anything. All good. Um, but if we were to examine the idea of removing this from TOS or removing basically any soft forms of edge gaining that aren't able to be policed uh, and we analyze who suffers the most from this, it's going to be that bottom third of the pool that's already kind of suffering at the hands of not being up to, to snuff on study, not utilizing solvers and all the other advancements in this, in this arena. So uh, I guess my concern is that... Let's, let's clarify who that is, though. Go ahead. Who is the bottom third? It's uh, the, recre in my opinion, yeah. the recreational players and the, the breakback players. The worst yeah. regs. Yeah, yeah. Just, to we, just so we can set that distinction because now you have an actual avatar that you're exploiting. Right. We've just clarified it. Now, why don't you continue with... Yeah, okay, so to that end, when we're looking at the weakest players in the pool kind of being uh, taken out behind the shed a little bit more than they already are, my concern is that the environment becomes completely unstable. And, you know, the counter-argument to that is perhaps it already is. There's already a lot of nefarious activity taking place in the form of soft collusion, in the form of ghosting, in the form of potential RTA and card sharing. Uh, these are all going to be far more powerful, I think, of edges. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them are going to be far more powerful edges than simple data analysis. Data analysis feels like just study to some degree. Um, but bringing this full circle then to uh kind of kind of posing the question of where do we draw the line uh is it at the ability to police or is it at the ability or, or sorry the uh the qualification of things that are predatory to the environment the distinction the definition of predatory feels like the most important thing if if predatory is defined as things that might ruin poker forever mm -hmm. then yeah i think there's a real need to draw a hard line. If predatory means creating emotional inconvenience for those who are unskilled, I'm not interested in the conversation because that happens in any performance arena Yeah, that's in the fair. World. I know that many people might not share my level of uh, cutthroatness in that regard, but I just don't care. That's just what I believe. So then the follow-up to that is obviously, do you believe that uh, mass data analysis can make online unstable enough to the point where it threatens poker in the online realm long term i think it could and this is something that uh chewie and i were talking about off camera right before we kind of got here early we thought we might end up here but um 
I think the biggest threat, and this was something that I, I believe my brother said this first, so I don't want to take credit for this discovery of this concept, but, um, and I don't want to put words in his mouth either, but I definitely didn't invent this idea. I believe it came from Patrick, and he said, the biggest threat of MDA being adopted globally by the industry, meaning everybody starts using it, is that fish would start losing at such a rate that they would be no longer interested in playing poker. And this is an extremely valid point. Not, not even necessarily that we would just gut all the fish, because that's not even the most consistent argument. Like at the top levels, you know, the fish have other streams of income. So the fish can come lose 100K a month, and the fish doesn't go broke. They have other you know, avenues of generating wealth. But at the point at which you are disincentivizing a recreational player from sitting down at the table because they no longer have fun, that is the point where they're going to go play blackjack instead of poker. The poker is enticing to a recreational player because they can win frequently enough where they're drawn to it again and again. If you increase the rate at which they lose, you diminish their amount of winning sessions. And to think that that won't cause a recreational player to become attracted to other games feels naive since there are entire you know, industries and divisions based on picking the right amount of loss that keeps a player coming back. When you look at how they design roulette versus craps versus slots, there's people that are very intelligent who are studying human behavior and know how to gamify the loss rate. But this is a real threat. If, if recreational players begin losing at too fast a rate, it's not so much that we make them all go broke, it's that we discourage them from coming back and enjoying the game. Yeah. That, to me, is the real and threat. Th there's residual impact there, for sure. Um, and that is, you know, may well be a main idea that operators have in crafting the terms of service. I want to ask an adjacent question, though. Um, so the idea of MDA being allowed, um, this portion of the player pool, the recreational non-studying player, they would also have access to that. That to me is like a fair distinction. Like if... Um, More access than they currently have? I think so. I mean, let's take a Wizard, for example. Mm -hmm. If you're a poker player that attended the World Series this year, you know what the product is. Yep. You can go get access to Sims. Yep. Um, data isn't on that level. You have to kind of search through, you know, various channels or whatever to even come up with the URLs to where you can buy those hands, right? Right. So... And it's still relatively useless until you have an, an analyst. Sure. Um, but I guess that's the distinction I'm thinking of. It... I think, that's, I think that's a notable one because I think to your point, if it were no longer against TOS and just became a free-for-all, I think major players like Wizard would just get into the data scraping industry. Yeah, I mean, of course. Their database would now be fully comprised of not just millions of hands, but hundreds of millions of hands, maybe billions of hands of scraped data that they're running through their AIs, their... Uh, interfaces, making it easier for the everyman to interpret. Uh, it feels like a very slippery slope. It's kind of a cool one, 
it is kind of cool as a poker nerd like you obviously want to see those stats like as nick earlier you're describing what you guys do i'm like damn that sounds really fucking cool <laughs> i mean this is already happening i'm not going to name names but of the trainers that are out there i know of two already that are in the process of overlaying population analysis into their interface so you will be able to train directly against population analysis. Yeah, and I mean yeah, like that type of thing seems as if it like it just seems unfair to hide that. I understand a lot of work would have been done, right, to to generate that data, but I don't know. Like how would you feel if uh I guess it's, it's not really... Why don't you start by defining what you mean by hide? Um, okay. Like yeah. its current state, I, I would assume, is what you're talking about. Yeah, I guess... I, I didn't really phrase that in the right way because it's only hidden in the sense that they're doing it to gain an edge and they're not publicizing it because they're not selling it or want others to be aware of it, right? Well, it sounds like, yeah, and maybe what you're saying is that because solvers are so mainstream, the barrier to entry is lower for yes. a recreational or non-studied right like data analysis is still a bit gate kept yes that's fair and i only tweeted seven times a day in 2022 to try to raise awareness around it but i gave up doing that so why don't i just read a <laughs> an excerpt from our engineers uh this one i think is relevant here they they wanted to submit this in case this topic came up mm -hmm. quote the barrier to entry for public access to mined hands is low a sufficient database for low and mid stakes will cost a few hundred dollars and close to a thousand dollars for high stakes. There is a technical barrier as far as being able to analyze the data, but access is not hard to gain. It's not like we have access to some secret sauce database that's hidden from the rest of the market. These databases are relatively cheap and readily available to anybody. Now that's end quote. Here's what I'm adding to it. That said, our engineers do approach population analysis with more scientific rigor than most freelance analysts or individual players would be qualified for. That's not a judgment, that's just the facts based on the type of mistakes we see the newcomers and freelancers making constantly. I would say that's very much on par with the evolution of utilization of solvers. Like if you go back to 2015, a handful of people knew how to weaponize, I don't want to use weaponize, that's the wrong term, but how to efficiently utilize the data that they were examining and apply it in game to create a strategy that was more bulletproof. Fast forward to 2023, and like Chewy said, uh, you have guys who are playing the 320 daily that are capable of looking up a spot in three seconds or less on wizard yeah. uh, database. and. You could debate the accuracy or the efficacy all day long, but the fact of the matter is it's a hell of a lot more than they had access to a couple of years ago when they didn't even know this stuff existed. Certainly. And I think a large reason that I like this idea of discussing why not just allow it is mm -hmm. because let's take the parallel universe where when solvers came into scope, the sites decided, you know what, you can't use these. Use solvers, you're banned. You use solvers like, you know, you can't play in our games. What would have happened? I mean, much in the same way as what's happening with data mining, right? People just would have used them all the same and they would have looked to just kind of continue as normal. Yeah. So I just kind of look at it like it's prohibition in a way. It does, the po it does pose the question though of how does this look over many iterations? 
like if if we open that dam, obviously there's no there's no closing it thereafter. Pandora's box will be. Well, I, I had a discussion. Sorry to interrupt. No, you, go ahead. I had a discussion with uh, industry higher up who thinks that the integration of HUDs initially was actually the Pandora's box opening, and that was. The, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think it's a very fair point. Yeah, I, I think that's super fair. And then everything that comes after that is like, well, you made your bed, now you sleep in it. Yeah, I also think it's kind of inevitable if we hadn't made HUDs widely accessible industry-wide, it would have been this gate-kept information that a small fraction of the industry was utilizing and capitalizing. Right, and on. that's what I think is, is wrong, right? It's like, if, if something's going to happen, then let it happen and democratize it and give everyone access. Level the playing field. Exactly, let, let companies sell it and, and everyone knows. So I guess my question then becomes, what does this look like as it iterates because we can all agree having played a lot of live poker between the three of us and i don't want to speak for youtube but i i think we're getting to a point of preferring it um that it's a very slow moving industry regardless of the changes that are occurring at scale online and most of that is just due to the inadequate sample you won't play a, a significant sample in your life let alone in a year or a month or a week uh so with that being said as things progress forward very rapidly online, does this disincentivize even the best of the best from trying to compete in an arena that is quickly approaching zero as far as edges that are able to be gained? I don't know, but it seems like, Nick, your opinion is very much, no, that's not the case at all, right? That we are disincentivizing, disincentivizing the best players from even continuing? Not this very second, but if we were to kind of... Uh, you know, take the reins off, allow this to happen now at scale to where even, you know, entry level players are spending time with mass data and, you know, whatever the next iteration is thereafter. Like, you know, this is Stockfish One as far as uh, new technology to the industry. It's going to iterate many times over. Won't we just see the floor continue to raise while the ceiling continues to lower? But isn't this also kind of the same argument that people have always made about anything that helps you improve? Whether it was training sites or, well, if or, we look at, or if solvers. We, like, yes, the game's gotten tougher, but... If we look over the last 20 years, it, it has significantly... The edges have significantly decreased. Yeah, but don't you think there's also, in some ways... I'm getting a bit off topic That's here. That's okay, but, uh, Don't you think there's, in some ways, like, non-linear returns? It's not a, a purely monetary gain at some point when the community has a greater depth of understanding of what it is we're actually doing... And like we, we gain insight into ourselves and the game grows overall. That's oh, I, I think that last point is where I heavily disagree. Oh, okay. I think the game shrinks tremendously. Well, poker's growing and all the stuff's happening, right? Kind of. Uh, I don't know the online numbers. Okay. I think live growth. That's fair. I think live growth is, is So it's growing clear. in spite of these things. Oh, well, I don't know. But I think live is specifically growing. I don't know if mm -hmm. online is declining at all. And I think that it's important to separate the two because even though they are the same game and the same information applies to both, at least to some degree, live is far, far, far more insulated and the barrier of entry for people who want to play for fun is far lower. And I guess the way that I view this is the more that we turn online into uh, something akin to the high roller arena, the less interested beginners will become in trying to dip their toes into the water. I mean... We're at a stage where 50 NL is almost impossible to beat for somebody who doesn't have some real study under their belt. Hmm. And maybe I'm a little out of pocket saying that, Nick, you would, you would know better than me, but what chance does somebody who's less than a year into their career without mass data analysis have at like 50 NL? 
It depends how much they have their life together. And I don't think that's a popular answer, but training hundreds of players. I'll just give you an example of something we found back in 2019. First prototype of data-driven strategies, we gave it to dozens of new recruits. And we saw half the team go to high stakes and the other half failed out. Same strategy. Couldn't really figure out what was going on. Patrick was on board at the time. We started doing player surveys. And eventually what we realized is that the players who were failing were breaking down at a logistical level. Meaning these were the guys that were waking up, eating pizza for breakfast, not going to bed on time, out drinking. Their life was just in shambles. They didn't have structured play and study schedules. A lot of them didn't even know how to study. And that comes just from like, you know, some educational constraints but it is not hard to beat small stakes if you have a basic system and you can stick to the basics there's two problems certain people have a lot of shit going on in their life and they're not able to show up daily and execute consistently and the other problem is a mindset problem where a player gets so spun out by short-term variance that they start subbing out good parts for bad and changing their strategy every five thousand hands that player's brain is just not made out to be a poker player. Not yet, at least. Yeah, they, I remember we had this discussion, like, uh, you came over that one day, and that was quite interesting for me, because um, I felt like I, I'm actually not predisposed to have the qualities that tend to succeed in the industry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it makes sense. Did, you, did I ever give you our first you suitability test? Yeah. So I don't remember how I scored, but I did take it. I can't remember either, but funny enough, Marinelli was the highest score we ever had, and he happens to be America's number one right now. But just a quick context of um, how we advanced on this, we used the Harrison assessment, which is the world's leading job suitability assessment, and we created the first template for poker players. Before that, the closest thing they had was like a stockbroker template. Now, if you don't know anything about the Harrison, it's not a test. It is a process of stack ranking certain questions that would plot your preference as a trait. It just gives you a series of these, like there's like 20 or 30 of them, and you just sort top to bottom your highest preference in this zone. Sentences, would you rather be here or here? Would you rather do it this way or this way? Through this process, the algorithm basically allows you to determine the suitability of a candidate for a certain job role use this for CEOs, chief officer, chief operations officer, basically any job you're trying to fill, they didn't have a poker player job. So we took 30 crushers and 30 strugglers. We all had them take the suitability assessment. And the two traits that we basically identified as the most important for determining success in poker uh, were surprising at first. The correlation with success was, uh, is the player well organized? And at first, that stood out to us as a bit confusing. But when we started to look at on the logistical constraints of the players who were tanking, organization spans the entire logistical domain. It has everything to do with how you organize your day down to how you organize the folders that you use to study. So being able to have that type of balance in your life seems to be very important. The attribute that was most correlated with poor performance was a high self-criticism trait, weakness, meaning these players were stuck in fixed mindsets. When they make mistakes, uh, they get very upset with themselves and they don't recover well. If I was going to distill this down, I would say they have a negative relationship with mistakes. So coming back full circle, 
if you're asking me if it disincentivizes the best players in the world to continue playing poker, knowing that mass data analysis is becoming more popular, I would say not as much as you think because those players already know why they're great. Most of them have the self-awareness to know that the barrier to entry to being able to play in a calibrated, spontaneous manner throughout a full session and the mental fortitude that's necessary in order to do that, that is a higher order of leverage than most players have access to, and it is not simply a strategic form of leverage. It is logistical and also mindset-oriented. So I think where this argument may fall on deaf ears is like when people think that the strategic dimension is the only reason that players are crushing, that is a very fractured understanding of what goes on at the top limits. Yeah, that's, I think that's really well said. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, but I want to rephrase the question a little bit because though I think everything you just said speaks to why the 1 in 100 or 1 in 1,000 are able to be the outliers. What I'm more asking is how the online community as a whole shifts as we get more and more vision over strategy and more and more perfect vision over it. So what I'm really asking is, do you believe if the barrier of entry raises, the ceiling lowers, and the general floor necessary to maintain being a man in the arena at all continually gets higher as well do you think that we see this shrinking mechanism take place over the entire community as a whole in other words do we just see dollars leaving the online space probably yeah that's that's my natural assumption is that uh and i kind of think that there's a positive correlation between that shrinking effect that may perhaps be taking place online and the massive amount of growth that we're seeing live. Yeah, so I guess first I'll just ask, does this bother you that that might be the natural evolution of the game? I don't know if it bothers me so much. Um, I'm, I'm definitely a bit of a contrarian in the sense that uh, I don't believe we truly have much of a grasp over what is good or bad for poker. So when I hear a lot of these people anecdotally shouting like, that's terrible for poker, that's... Uh, that's that's gonna scare all the whales like you know do this that or the other etiquette wise or uh, I don't buy into that you know I, I think that this whole notion that we're meant to pull the wool over the eyes of the weaker opponents to keep them around a little bit longer is very disingenuous and it's insulting to I agree with that rather intelligent people yeah. that uh, just have money to burn um, but on the other hand I'm not I'm not naive enough I guess to ignore the fact that as the market shrinks, the incentives to remain in the market, no matter how good you are, go down. I agree. And I don't think it's disincentivizing top minds in the game today from taking it for all that it is worth in the interim. Three to five years, we might see that margins are pretty thin online. Maybe you can't do better than 200 an hour. Maybe you can't get good enough action. Mm -hmm. The players who solve the logistical constraint online have a better chance of sustaining win rate for longer. And by that, I mean the players who spend a lot of time navigating onto softer sites are the ones who are going to have the most longevity with the highest hourly rates. But so, I do agree that we're going to see a, a trend towards uh, 
So this is kind of a crazy pivot, but I think it will come full circle to uh, a bigger question I want to pose. But uh, are we just restricted to that that finality type of outcome, or where where you know it's kind of like get the bag now, get in, get out while the money is good, or is there something to a growth mindset, especially those of us in a position with platforms uh, who have relative success and are able to kind of maybe reach operators even at a, a lower level to shape and shift the way that this whole thing shakes out. So in other words, like, are we just totally resigned to the doom of, or the ultimate death of, of poker starting with online? Or is there a capacity where we can just recreate the game as a whole and ne never re-simulate the boom, of course, but create a more healthy ecosystem? where it's less predatory and it's less about getting the bag now and a lot more about sustainability. I think it depends on what your suggestions are to do that, right? Well, I, I don't know that I'm the guy, but I'm, I'm throwing yeah. it out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question. And I definitely think that if there's one takeaway um, that I've had from this whole experience, since I had the discussion with Kier and it stemmed off into a lot of discussions online with various individuals, um, it just feels like community discussions are just generally good and like a win-win yeah. win for all. Yeah, agreed. Uh, seeing how many differing opinions there are is not something I ever would have really imagined. Um, I guess I've sort of... Uh, I haven't mentioned this yet, but like I've played a good bit of tournaments on ACR. Mm -hmm. I've never done any mass data analysis because for me it was against the terms of service. I surely would have done it if it was allowed, knowing that there's a lot of people that are doing it seeing individual hands on me despite the fact that we've ever played together no, it doesn't make me feel great right right and i think that you know to your point um anyone who uh would have that same experience i think would feel in my opinion rightfully wronged it's not at the same level of a a deeper form of cheating um you know seeing your whole cards rta etc um but I think a good starting point is getting everyone on the same page. I think that could establish further growth. And yeah, maybe it's not another boom per se, but it's certainly more inviting. Yeah, something I've learned a lot probably in the last, since pandemic, I would say, when I was forced back into the online environment a bit uh, and also just having Landon kind of come into my, to my life a bit and getting exposed to that generation more. Mm -hmm. What's abundantly clear to me and I don't want to project this out onto an entire generation of up-and-coming players, but the general consensus that I gather from that collective is that if it's not policeable and you are still abiding by the rules, you're not sharp. Yeah, I, I, I really don't like that, um, that line of thought. I, right. I, I think it's born a little bit out of them having not lived it. Because if we go back to that time frame when we were certainly in the wild, wild west and terms of service were merely a suggestion, uh, it's not that we all broke the rules necessarily, but we all certainly knew somebody who did, right? So even if we weren't actively partaking, somebody within arm's length of us was, whether it was, I mean, ghosting probably being the most common, taking over accounts all that type of stuff, but then even, you know, the, the first iterations of multi-accounting and, and things of that nature. There wasn't a lot of fallout from that type of stuff when our generation was guilty of a lot of insidious behavior that was certainly just predatory edge-seeking, 
and trying to garner unfair advantages. But fast forward now 10 years where we have drawn moral lines in the sand and ethical ones and things of that nature, we point back to that time frame and say a like, very fair point. This was all really bad, right? Like when uh, I can think of like four or five examples off the top of my head, uh, JJ prodigy, one of the biggest multi accounters maybe ever. We worshiped this guy. He was, a, well, I guess I came, I don't know. When did you start? Cause he, Oh three. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess he'd already kind of fallen off at the point that I got in Oh five, Oh six. It was, I, I want to say it was like, yeah, it was six Oh seven that he kind of was outed and, and yeah. kind of fell apart. Um, but like he comes to mind, Bonomo obviously comes to mind, Jay Little uh, running that 24-7 sit-and-go ring. At the time that he got busted, nobody gave a shit. Like he just lost his Red Pro status. We didn't even think anything of it. Like personally, anyway, I'm speaking from my point of view, I, I didn't think much of it. Um, the the Brian Hastings versus Isildur scenario, which we kind of spoke about a little bit mm -hmm. off air, where he and Brian Townsend kind of collectively pulled their database together. Townsend did like one of the, maybe the first original data analysis uh, analyses of uh, where Isildur was weak and they just destroyed this kid for 6 million straight. Yeah. You know, playing 300, 600, that's, that's a lot of fucking buy-ins. Yeah. And he was, he was relished. Like he was worshiped over this 18 year old goes out, wins $6 million from the, the, the mysterious legend of, of Isildur. Um, it was very much still in that, interim phase of moving on from the old rogue road gambler like Doyle and Farha and whatnot that openly were willing to cheat each other because that's where edges were found to a more I guess constructed arena of online and live where rules actually mattered and ethics actually mattered and you know now we finally have gotten to the point in our careers as as being the old guard having gone through all this process and iterations within the community and seeing like what is bad and what's not bad behavior and how it should be properly punished and all this other stuff uh vpning is another good example there was a time frame from like 2012 to 2015 where this was ethically as bad as cheating someone mm, was it it felt that way at the time i mean you had to spend time money resources to leave the country right um and then that's a workaround but it doesn't and Nick, you made this point earlier, it doesn't give you a strategic edge. Although I guess you could say like, okay, you're away from like your family, your pets or whatever, and you're lonely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, uh, it's a bit ambiguous, I guess. Yeah. Well now for sure, because the community has kind of accepted it as like, well, there's no edge to be garnered and sites aren't as critical of it any longer. There's no edge to be garnered. If you only look at edge through the strategic dimension. Fair. There's clearly edge to be garnered if you include the logistical dimension which in this case is your geographical location the reason that vpning became acceptable is because it became convenient for the masses people rationalized for it the moment it became convenient and that's why there's not a lot of pushback against it anymore yeah i mean i think specifically sites like stars softening their stance on vpning where they stopped seizing funds uh they stopped you know policing it as though it was rta or collusion allowed everybody to kind of take a step back and say like, okay, there's, there's a, a, a higher order of grievances that players can be guilty of. And VPNing is pretty low on the pecking order. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying all this in but order- that is a perfect example of how arbitrary these lines are and how much people just wait for someone with more authority to make a rule before they decide that's what I'm gonna follow. And this has been happening 
since the beginning of time. Were well, you saying it's arbitrary ethically or arbitrarily uh, through EV gained? Because I, I think we can... I'm saying for a site to relax their policy on VPNing because they've decided that there is bigger fish to fry and to relax it on that reason... Oh, I don't think Which, that's the reason. I'm not sure if they're doing that, but that's what you just implied. So uh, I'm responding. I, I think to the that. reason is is that they were under high scrutiny post Black Friday, and they wanted to get back into America. And come 2017 ish, they had all gotten their way back into America, so there wasn't as much scrutiny necessary. So are you saying that it was never actually an ethical rule? It was one. Correct. It, it but, benefits yeah, their bottom line to uh, turn a blind eye to VPNing. Do you think that? people were the, under the impression when that rule existed that this was an ethical boundary. I personally think, like remembering back to that time, that yes, we, we thought it was drawn out of ethics. But mm, I don't know. I was a rat. I mean, I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, maybe I was just overly judgmental of something like that. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think certainly remember a regulatory measure. Sorry. Certainly remember people being accused of being cheaters if you were caught VPNing. Yeah, yeah that, that certainly happened. Yeah, and so, I think I think part of it is because there was high punishment for it. So like where there's high punishment, we assume high crime. My or at point, least that's my, my point default. here is, is that yeah, I understand where you're coming from. And I guess like it almost appalls me how much people just want to blindly follow rules without thorough investigation of I, where those incentives right. are really coming from. And I'm just really not in that camp. I have a lot of empathy for people who are trapped in that space where they won't walk across the fucking street unless the light is green, even though there's no cars in sight. I'm just not that person. I can't respect myself if I don't use independent thinking, yeah. critical thinking to make decisions that are clearly not hurting anyone, which we can go into the degree to which you're hurting people if you weaponize data. I think there are degrees, but walking across the street when the pedestrian light is not on is not hurting anyone. And there are people in this world who will not do that simply because a rule was made. I have empathy for that, but I'm not interested in really dealing with a debate around that topic with that type of person. I just think it's, it's absurd to me. Yeah. Um, I understand that. I think there's a distinction between um, following the rules blindly and sort of accepting that uh, these are the rules and I don't agree with them, but I will follow them because I don't want to get punished. I think that's the clear distinction that I was trying to get around to. I know I took a long trip for a short drink. Uh, <laughs> Speaking but, of, I have to use the restroom really bad. Can please I, can go. I get to get, okay, yeah. sweet. please continue. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make my point while you're gone. But uh, the, the point I was trying to get around to is that I think that's the clear distinction between like Chewie and I's generation now having been through the war and seeing what it can do to the overall community when uh, certain things aren't obeyed uh, and we just kind of allow free-for-all as opposed to this newer generation that kind of still has that EV driven mindset where it's like edges are getting smaller and I need to increase mine as fast as possible because getting in and getting out is getting in and getting out rich is much more important to me than getting in and, uh, you know, kind of growing roots and being a part of this larger thing. If we could stop poker from being ruined through these iterations of right. AI, however you want to frame that. If you want to lump data-driven strategies into 
the AI revolution. Sure, for the sake of summarizing the point, fine. If we could prevent it, I think all good pros would be in favor of it. Because Agreed. every good pro benefits from the time horizon of online poker lengthening. Assuming they love the game and they want to make the most money, you would benefit from not skinning the, sh the sheep. This is yeah. right. I just but, passed this up the other day too. Shearing the sheep? Well, you'd benefit, for, you'd benefit by shearing the sheep instead, instead of, of skinning. skinning it. Yeah. But I think, the, I think that qualifier is huge. I, I don't necessarily think that some of the brightest minds and the biggest winners care that much about the game itself, the community, or the integrity thereof. I think that they see a big opportunity to make a lot of money in a pretty reasonably short order. Uh, somebody like Squid comes to mind, not Sam Grafton to be clear, um, but uh, the kid who basically RTA'd for like 18 months, ripped through uh, high rollers and, and online heads up for multiple millions and then just got out. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, Squid. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can't, can't remember his real name. Uh, Zhuang Ron. Yeah, correct. Um, one of the biggest RTAers of all time and wasn't found out until he was long gone. And I think that that specific mindset is a big undercurrent to a lot of the sharpest people in this space. So it becomes a question of, do we just accept that? And we all just kind of- Well, let's go back to what Landon said about, if you don't, then you're not sharp. Was this the general- not, Landon didn't actually say that, but basically that's the sentiment that I gather from that sort of age bracket of like, oh, you're so dumb, you're old, and you're abiding by the rules. Uh, well, here's how I interpret it, and I feel like this is more Darwinian, mm -hmm. but if you don't get on board with it and it cannot be policed, you're just going to end up being this idiot martyr who's standing on his hill until you know it eventually just gets taken over by the unethical people. Yeah. And I'm just not willing to victimize myself. I think that's a borderline masochistic position. Well, I'll counter, if you don't mind. Um, I think that that's easy to take that position with data because I think we all agree that strategies just evolve and data helps that. What about something like ghosting? Completely unable to be policed. People are out there doing it every single day, stealing EV and edges away from you. You have the ability to just get on board, run a stable that ghosts one another, and increase your own bottom line in the near term. Or are you going to be the martyr on the hill? I'm against ghosting. And if it became so prevalent and unpoliced that it was required in order to maintain edge, I would not be surprised that the industry rationalized. Agreed. I actually think it's much more widespread than mass data. But now what you're discussing is the concept of ethical fading, which is really what this all hinges on is like, if it were to go in that direction, who is going to be, you know, the last man to stand ground who has any level of influence. And personally, I don't know many people who have the capacity to enforce the type of security that we would need in order to hold the types of lines that prevent anarchy as you put it off camera i don't want to see it go that way because from an evolutionary standpoint all of the pros make more money across the longest time horizon so the right. survival of the game is the most lucrative the operators also 
to them too. Let's not leave them out of it because their motivations are really the ultimate driving force. What we want doesn't really matter nearly as much. Well, the incentives are aligned in that way, though. To some degree, the yes. operators want to keep the games alive. The pros want to keep the games alive. Whether or not that's going to be possible depends on the security. And we don't really have control over that, except we can voice opinions like this that we have a high preference for it to be prioritized. Other right. than that, I just don't see how I can justify losing energy over it. So I will hold what I believe to be a stable line in the sand with where we are, with the cat already out of the bag. The most objective place I can arrive at ethically is... I will not authorize population analysis on specific opponents that my players have not played against personally. So to be clear, that, that would be you wouldn't purchase hands against a specific opponent? I would not purchase hands and targeting, then... Targeting a specific opponent. To, in order to target a specific opponent that I or my players... And this is a key distinction. That the player has not played against right so if i played against someone and then i gave it to my player my sample and was like check the stats of this reg out now what you're talking about is the hastings uh Isildur. Isildur case yeah. right which yeah. is they combined their databases to exploit one player that to me feels over the line I, at least where i want to draw the line currently because i feel like we're required to hold that line for as long as we can and see if we can police it yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that, but I don't know. I mean, in the initial Twitter thread we had, um, Kevin Rabichow mentioned how it doesn't seem that clear. I think ads chimed in. Uh, like, let's say in the um, Hastings Townsend situation, they didn't actually use hand histories and, and do analysis, and they just had very deep discussion outlining different, you know, okay, what, what about in this flop when he check raises? Okay, what about when he delay probes this line? Like, you're getting a lot of the same stuff out of it. I know you made the point, Matt, to me, that there's a difference between anecdotal and, you know, sort of... I think it's just like quantitative versus qualitative, right? Like, with, with data, we can empirically look at something and say, like, okay, over that sample... Uh, we can with a relatively high degree of confidence say this is signal not noise yeah but if you and i are just hashing out reads mm -hmm. uh it, it's really only worth whatever degree of accuracy our reads have plus our confidence in that accuracy so what about now the scenario where okay before they um collaborate and and do all this data analysis on their opponent you know, they have these brainstorming sessions and then they start tracking it okay mm -hmm. now you know this was right this was wrong see what i mean it's 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 slippery yeah it's very it's very similar the outcome the desired outcome is similar and i i understand that it's different the the you know the welcoming of of data into that equation does inherently change it but in some ways like i definitely see nick's point i see your point 100 percent um it does feel a little bit archaic to me yeah i think that's fair i i think what it ultimately comes down to is that the more granular you're able to get, the more potent the data is. Right, but we love that granularity in poker. That's kind right. of where it's going. Right, so the discussion really then hinges around... Will it kill the game? Yeah, like, is, is there a clear line where you start to gain so much vision and oversight that what you gain obviously has to come at a loss to somebody else? 
uh, and that becomes very personal, it seems, when it's a 1v1 type of targeted Let's look at approach. it like this. If, if regs are smart, which we assume most of them are, mm -hmm. and they're not in the bottom third as we've labeled it, then they're going to know if things go in this direction, you're going to have to perform explicit granular population analysis in order to survive. And they will play that game together, and they will probably break even eventually. Correct. The, re the, the edge we'll between regs yeah. will go down, and the best regs will be the one that can calibrate counter strategies and revert to a equilibrium baseline the best without using RTA. The people that will suffer the most are the fish who are now getting maximally exploited by population analysis that causes them to lose at 60 BB per hundred instead of 30 BB per hundred. Right. And they will no longer enjoy their experience. They will leave the game and that will be what kills the game. So the threat is not what will happen if regs start street warring with MDA and countering each other back and forth over 50,000 hand iterations where they totally plow through each other's databases the threat is what will happen if the fish start losing at too high of a rate and no longer enjoy the game i think i think both can potentially be a threat and we've kind of seen this at high stakes in online uh whether it's mda it's the the advent of solvers or it's some level of rta the amount of reg battling that has taken place at high stakes continually keeps regressing what that ceiling is we don't have rail heaven anymore of 501k you know, people who are playing 10K and L are fucking end bosses of the world right now. That was bound to happen, though, with just solvers being available. Agreed. Though. Maybe it would have taken longer, but we were already on that path. Agreed. I guess what I was talking about in terms of the threat is the survival, the existential threat to online poker. Yeah, the only reason I'm speaking about this top-down suppression is because uh, as that continues to happen, where regs keep regressing to zero versus the pool they will continually lower their stakes, their average stake that they're willing to play. So like, for instance, somebody like Jeremiah, who is, you know, maybe one of the top American regs is playing every stake from 200 NL to 10K NL. And that becomes a bit more of a problem now whenever it comes to the sustainability for those who are capable of beating the average 200 NL pool, but clearly can't compete at 10K. Sure. It depends on fish being in all of those games. Yeah. Yes. I exactly. want to pivot because it kind of just feels like a cool place to go on the other side of the ethical argument. Well, let's talk about the ramifications of not having any data. Because I have personal experience with the suffering that was caused by not having objective data-driven strategies at a time when I was playing professionally. In fact, it's what compelled me to go and create data-driven strategies. What I see in the industry still is many coaches profiting off of strategic information that is objectively false at this stage. Just to give an example so that you don't think I'm pulling something out of the sky, there is an abundance of strategic content that still does not believe that fish can be bluffed. Yet the data will show you that recreational players fish are globally overfolding. I find it potentially unethical that coaches who are claiming to be naive to data-driven strategies are selling content that is objectively hurting innocent buyers who really want to get better at poker. Do I have a vested interest in that? My experience gives me a bias, 
but I suffered deeply from that. So the fish are not the only people that are suffering. The people who are suffering largely without data-driven strategies are the ones who went into poker wanting to feel like they had a reliable career, who loved the game and wanted to feel like they could be responsible investors. And the lack of actual reliable decision-making strategy available made that impossible. I went through that. I feel like it deserves at least some discussion in terms of the other side of the ethics. Well, we can talk a bit about live. There's no real quantifiable data there that's able to be uh, acquired in mass. Maybe a lot of it's going to cross over though, right? Like if you get... Well, live. that's a whole nother fucking podcast because we've already done that <laughs> we, one. But. We can hash this out. I think he's oh. finally started to see eye to eye. Not that, that, that I'm right or he's wrong or anything like that, but more so that there's a, a bit of a shift in the definitions. Sure, okay. sure. The profiles okay. shift. There are going to be I correlations. But I didn't realize no, that. You, so. you just didn't, oh, very you didn't touchy know. subject. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he spent hours on it. He locked me in a fucking cabin in Mount yeah. Charleston and cornered me. I couldn't that, even go out. That is the right way to do it. Yeah, well, uh, I'm like I'm like screaming at him that he can't possibly tell me that the average fish at 5K and L online is Bob Bright. Well, the uh, I mean the basis <laughs> of that whole fucking argument was that you were trying to convince me that fish don't overbluff, and right. I'm showing you data that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt shows that fish globally overbluff online by like fucking five percent or more. Like yeah, the, yeah. the threshold is just like it's not even close. Yeah. And so for you to say that live operates in a fundamentally different way, meaning like an opposite way, where it's t a totally unfalsifiable statement, that would just feel like quite a leap to me. A scientist would assume that it operates similarly unless there are very strong reasons to think otherwise. Yeah. And I think that was just sort of where we rested the case. We agreed to disagree. Obviously, having played a bunch of live, are you still... Are you still dug in? To my belief that fish, fish bluff too frequently? Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're fucking crazy in that regard. Okay. But I do, I do acknowledge that there are specific recreational profiles that don't seem to present online that are present in the live environment who don't seem to like bluffing. Yeah, so I, I think that. we just ultimately defined fish differently. But get me back to my point because we just yeah, almost I, got I, to yeah, yeah. I, I'll, yeah. I'll pick up where you left off. Um, so you were talking about, you know, uh, a good faith, well-meaning participant in the ecosystem who decides I want to do this professionally and gets coaching and gets taught bad information and how that, the, the ethics of that, in your opinion, are uh, somewhat up for discussion. As I mean, a, as a I, counterpoint to the ethics of having, of right. pursuing data-driven strategies. Right. Yeah. So I don't feel that, I don't really feel much for the person who hires a coach and I mean it's un it's unfortunate they get they get uh, spoon-fed bad information but they went out of their way to make a purchase and like I don't know I mean this happens all the time in other industries sure, right sure you, now you, let me make it a yeah. bit more um, detailed cat is out of the bag mm -hmm. it's 2023 there are multiple established data-driven companies that can systematically prove that many of the strategic assumptions that are being made by mainstream poker are flat out false. Specific instructions that are being sold and even given away for free that are influencing innocent professionals 
to play disincentivized strategies? Do you believe that if there's enough awareness raised that those strategy suggestions are flat out wrong, that it would be unethical for those coaches to continue to push that type of content out? Um, and be careful here, Chewy, because you're on fucking camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, this is why I wanted to have this discussion. I would like for operators to get a glimpse of, you know, sort of what we're thinking. And I guess in some ways, the aspects of the community that we represent. Um, to be uh, fair, I think we represent a sliver. And I think we're projecting well, it's, it it's as a, a start, right? We want no, no, I get that. But I think, I think like this specific line of questioning even... I think we represent a very small uh, denoted portion of the player pool that is already at a bare minimum studied, uh, if not winning. And I think that the average consumer is none of those things. I'd like to think that my views align with the average consumer. Like Ooh, that, okay, that's interesting. Go on. Well, that is why I've sort of argued in favor of following the terms of service. Because if you're right. a random participant in an online poker game... That's all you have. You don't have a Discord chat. You don't have Twitter, or you may not. You may not have like any sort of insider you can text and ask right. a question to. And it's unlikely your mind gravitates towards gamifying the system and figuring out its holes and where you can take advantage. If you're drawn to poker, it might. Maybe. It's possible. Probably not in mass, though. Yeah, probably not in mass. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think to Nick's point, uh, rather than drawing the one-to-one -one correlation between uh, the, the person who has mass data available online versus the one who doesn't i think that there's a massive collection of people live who just do not and i think that maybe i'm a little bit biased here because that's my preferred form of poker but i think that some part of all of us can agree that poker in its best state is what we currently see or maybe we're actually moving past it seeing how tough tournaments are starting to get where live poker was in the mid to late 2000s uh just this this very freestyled wild wild west type of wits and wager game where the it's good just, old days yeah it's like just out flanking people you know <laughs> uh i think that we would be a little bit dishonest if we didn't recognize that as professionals we want to preserve that for as long as humanly possible why though well for no other reason than it makes our lives a lot simpler as professionals to um, preserve the game you mean yeah to pre preserve a state of uh unknowingness okay to so protect the information to, pr to preserve a state of unconsciousness that increases the longevity of the game but potentially results in misinformation being sold virtually everywhere yeah i actually i agree with you here more nick like i do think and i mentioned this earlier I think there are non-linear non and very positive returns on generally understanding things. Mm -hmm. That is a view that I have that can be related to poker, but is generally the way in which I have conceived of that idea doesn't typically involve poker, although I've seen it happen. No, it just reflects that you're conscious. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is anyone who is on a conscious path would immediately prefer waking up to the truth as opposed to being as opposed to remaining in prison like mental prison is still the way i see 
much of mainstream poker strategy content being organized. And again, I have felt the pain of being on the ass end of receiving that type of information. So I'm very connected to the struggle. It's the reason I'm still in the industry. I thought it'd be out five years ago, but it just keeps pulling me back because we're not aligned yet. Mm-hmm. It's painful to me that That's the good. industry is not on a conscious path and we're using excuses like we want to keep the wild, wild west vibe intact. No, well, it's, it's not just that though. You're, you're also projecting your desire for uh, truth, not just truth for for vision and and dominance over a field that at its core is very data driven this this game distills down to something incredibly mathematical but it, but by taking it at that at that simple base level you're drastically overlooking how complex the system is and how chaotic it is that chaos is what both draws people in and allows the game to sustain the more that you drill down into the data and remove the chaos, the less chaos theory exists and the more aware everybody becomes that they can't win. So it sounds like you're saying we need to maintain the chaotic nature of the poker environment, even if it means selling misinformation at large. I mean, you keep digging into the selling of information and I I understand why. Uh, To me, I, I I just don't care about that personally. Because I think that generally the people that are purchasing are still gaining something out of that as opposed to being exposed to nothing. And it's rarely going to be somebody who is uh, headed down a path of um, you know, mastery. Uh, people who buy training content are not trying to head down a path of mastery? Most, and I'm saying this as somebody who owns a training site, I have you know, pretty clear understanding of what our target audience looks like. Most people that are spending more than I'm, I'm making up an arbitrary number, but it's low, like sub a hundred dollars on poker training. The, the vast majority of people spending over a hundred dollars per month or maybe even per year on poker training are going to be people that have no desire to master the game. That's totally fair. But I own a company that trains world-class players and have a desire to be world-class. So they need greater degrees of truth. Well, how sort is of. that? Sort of. It, it depends on where you're putting the priority of being world class. I put it on being objectively accurate, and I'm confused how you're going to combat that. Well, I'm combating it with with the the mass populace. That that path is not available to the mass populace, and the second that that becomes objectively evident to anybody who enters the arena the arena disappears i don't think it happens that fast but i do believe that it puts poker on a pace where there will be faster iterations and edge will be harder to like something like chess just sorts out very quickly those who are predisposed to it and those who are not and uh you know granted there's no real monetary value in becoming a gm uh, or at least it's it's very minimal by comparison to something like poker. But poker's born out of gambling. We've turned it into a mind sport, which is fantastic at its highest levels. It's a beautiful game to watch. But I think we can all agree there's a huge difference between watching a Triton final table and watching Hustler Live on Friday. Sure. But yeah. back to the point, do you think someone who coming into poker who has world-class ambitions 
deserves to have a streamlined objective path? Or do you believe that they should suffer through the chaos in order to keep poker intact? I think both. Yeah, don't they kind of deserve whatever they do? Like in, in some ways, isn't that like what poker is? You sort of deserve the things that happen to you in a way? I'm asking if they deserve for the path to exist. I think the yes, I, I, I think, think so. I, I think I, I'm unsure. And I, be, I, I say that this way because I think that the clear delineation between solver technology, even at the AI level, versus mass data analysis is the objectivity of it. Uh, solver analysis, even though it's incredibly potent and we can glean a lot from it, it's still relatively subjective to the variables that you input and the way that you utilize the, the actual software. MDA is going to be objectively true. It's just a matter of pulling that truth out of it. So if you're a terrible analyst, then you're not gonna get that objective truth. But at its core, that information is undeniable, right? It is, it is finite and objectively true, at least for that moment in time. Now it may morph, as strategies change, as people become more privy. But the point that I'm getting at is, in my mind, what I'm hearing when you're, when you're saying this is, do those who have world-class potential and desires deserve a bit of a shortcut? And I know that it's not meant to be, like, I, I know that sounds as though I'm coming off as like, uh, kind of attacking MDA or, or things of that nature, and I'm not, because going all the way back to the sport analogy, I think you're a fool if you're playing at the highest levels and you're not, you're not running uh, you know, analytics. Sure. Um, but I think to project that out onto the entire industry as a whole, where we're not talking about poker as a whole being the MLB, we're talking about it being T-ball all the way up to the MLB, where T-ball is sometimes played for millions of dollars. I think now, you know, segregating those two worlds and understanding that they very rarely will collide is an important distinction to make. And somebody who is offering entry-level type of content that may not apply to tough world-class games can actually help people get from T-ball to Little League. Could you go back to the shortcut thing? Sounds like you don't think the shortcut should exist? No, it's not that I don't think it should exist. It's more so that I'm just acknowledging that it's that powerful of a layer to add on top of a, a subjective arena. Like... A world-class player is going to become really fucking good with solver strategies. We know this. If you give a world-class player an RTA, what he's going to be able to do in-game based off of those answers as well as like the adjustments he makes will be incredible. When you add mass data analysis on top of that, uh, now his subjective reads aren't even necessary. Like It almost takes place of that and is going to be more accurate and more potent. Okay, so it sounds like you don't like instincts becoming a irrelevant becoming factor obsolete. in the game. Yeah, I would say that to some degree, I think it still should be played at a human level. Is it clear that instincts do become irrelevant? I think if you have enough data available, probably. I think live, never. I mean, Nick, what do you think? I think if you are a literalist, as we call it, uh, you know, somebody who just wants to follow the data as religiously as possible, that you can take most of the instinct out of it. That said, you still have to be able to uh, distinguish signal from noise. Like yeah. even AIs make stupid mistakes because they're just literally interpreting things that aren't you know, perfectly coded. But, but largely speaking, once you start to get to mass data uh, at that granular level, 
you're you're almost programming instincts out because it's so biased. Yes, yes, very very intentionally. That's your bias that you're you're trying to reprogram. What do you think the chances are that your bias is that you're identified with instincts? Uh, I I definitely acknowledge that exists. Uh, I also acknowledge that um, the the arena that I'm playing in is much closer to high school baseball than it is the MLB. Sure, but your instincts have clearly gotten you most of the way. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, largely. I, like I mean, at every stage of your career, for sure. I, I'm certainly in an arena where that data will never be available. So, as convenient it is as it would be for me to be a proponent of data-driven strategies, because I suffered as someone who didn't have strong instincts and sure. really wanted a reliable path. To me, it also makes sense that your path would lead you to want to defend the instinctual realm at all costs. Yeah. But I think also, and again, this could easily be biased projecting forward, but I would lean on defending uh, any attributes or traits that inherently separate people from their peers. So just like, you know, the same way poker uh, filters for intelligence, uh, I, I don't think that we should reduce the need for intelligence because there's something better available to us. Like, I don't like the idea of leveling the playing field um, through data? sheer, well, uh, data, data fits, fills the void, but I was going to say like through sheer uh, just rote force, right? Just like pumping out enough volume of hands and acquiring that information starts to level the playing field in a big way if people are doing a good job of analyzing it. I see. So you, it seems like your position is that the data-driven path actually makes the game too easy. Therefore, we should preserve the instinctual path because it will maximize the longevity of, of at least online poker. Yeah, I don't know if it makes the game too easy, but I think it creates a, a, a very big void. I think that... Um, I think that's a fair argument. Yeah, I think the separation between the bottom of the people who are utilizing the data really well and the top is going to be like Marinelli versus, you know, whatever that next tier down is that's still crushing the game. Whereas I think the separation between that next tier down and people who are completely not using the data is going to be a very large void and will only continue to grow. Yeah, that seems fair. And back to your point where the iteration will really squeeze the amount of edge up right. for grabs. I think that's bound to happen. I don't see a way to stop that now that the cat is already out of the bag unless security manages to take us back in time somehow, which still doesn't solve the problem because we already know. It'll just happen on the black market. That's, yeah, that's, that's clearly the issue. That's the biggest problem. I, I just do not see how it's policed. Correct. I, I, just I don't, agree with that. I don't see it. Because like, okay, you can stop maybe the, the sites selling hands, but how are you going to stop like stables of players sharing hands or, right. or individual? Like just, I just don't see it, honestly. So if that's true, then we're heading towards a future where online poker depends on some type of increased recreational traffic in order to stay alive. And that still doesn't solve the problem entirely because if recreational place players lose at too Faster fast rate. a rate, they will stop showing up. Yeah. So I don't really know where that leaves us. Perhaps there's three to five good years left in online poker, assuming that people onboard the data-driven data strategies. But now here's 
another caveat, which is that it's not that easy to convert people to a data-driven strategy. It's actually much harder than you think. And very few people who are even interested in it end up being compatible with it because it will challenge every pre-existing bias that you have. And when people don't get immediate results-based reinforcement that something is working, they give up. And that is a mindset weakness. That is not something that you can overcome by handing someone a proven strategy. If it was, we wouldn't fire as many people from our basic training camp as we do. I think, I think there's a specific reason for that. Now, I don't want to talk out of pocket, but uh, Chewy, you can maybe speak a little bit to this about what kind of initially drew you to the game. I think for a lot of us, we were drawn to the game as this complex problem that felt unsolvable, but that we were kind of moving a little bit closer towards every day, or at least we were doing a better job of solving it than our peers. And yeah, there was a lot of struggle in that, and there was a lot of survivorship bias in that. Um, but coming out the other end felt like a pretty big accomplishment that then just made you realize you you just you're just scratching the tip of the iceberg, right? Like there's just so much more. When you get to this layer of data that you know to to your own admission here, kind of presents a winning strategy, just you know, cover to cover, A to Z, uh, this is what it's going to take in order to, uh, you know, basically start from wherever you're at and arrive at your ultimate endpoint. Um, I think the reason why you probably have a lot of people who don't fit that mold very well is because their initial goal was the process all along. Whereas... No, the surveys say that everybody's goal is to get to high stakes. That is how almost every single poker player presents when you ask them what their objective is. And that's data. Yeah. Out of thousands of players that I've polled in consults, what do you want? That's how I always start. When I get yeah. to high stakes, it's but, the most common if you ask me what I, If you ask me as a 25-year-old what I want in a significant other, I'm probably going to say five foot three and a tight ass. But, you know, I'm not telling you the honest to God's truth. So you think that they aren't conscious of the fact that what they want is a grueling, confusing process that ends up plateauing in an unstable decision? I, I just think, Certainly, yeah. yeah, I think generally speaking, people are very sustainable people that are looking for purpose in life tend to gravitate towards process. And when you strip that away, the interest in the game is kind of just like, what am I doing this for an hourly? Well, the, the, this is a big takeaway of mine from Marinelli's podcast, right? Like, I haven't played high stakes cash with that uh, level of dedication in a very long time, arguably ever, because what he seems to be doing is not something I ever really had to do to win. Um, and he's kind of just saying like, yeah, everyone wants this, but like no one actually really does the things that they need to do. So surely that's reflective of the population that gets into poker and pursues yeah. Through to, to be fair, I, I think this is steering in a, in a way that I don't mean it for. Uh, I'm not against data analysis at all. I'm not against uh, the fact that we're here now and it's clear that we're trending in that direction. And I'm certainly not refuting that in order to be the absolute best of the best, top 0.1% in this industry, this is almost a necessity. Uh, what I'm more so speaking to is the general community as a whole and kind of recognizing that it's a it's a very large distance between the guy who randomly stumbles into a casino for the first time to play one three and the 
top of the top elite that has studied every single hand played against their opposition playing a 40-man tournament on TV uh, for Triton, right? Like, maybe that guy who stumbled in ultimately wants to be that high-stakes crusher at some point in time, but that process in between is going to be very, very much variable by person. Their experiences are all going to be very different. Those processes processes are going to look very different. The outcomes are going to be very different. And I think that's the beautiful aspect of poker. The second that we are able to actually predict that chaos a little bit better, I think uh, we are one foot in the grave. I, I agree with you. You don't want to remove the human element from the game, basically. Correct. Yeah, I think that's where you, I have to come back and establish the limitations of the data-driven strategy for those who aren't, you know, who don't have first-hand experience of what it is to execute on one, you are not taking the human element out of the game. If anything, you are putting a person to a test where they are forced to remove the remaining biases that keep them from being objective. Yeah, I was going to mention this, that it's, you know, you've mentioned this and others have, it's not a fail-safe against losing right. the, the data-driven strategies. Um, and you know, you can still lose to someone who you might have holes you, you're not aware of. You probably don't, but it's possible. No, you, you'll have blind spots and you'll also have areas where you know you should do something, but you rationalize for the other thing, either because you're risk averse or because you have a pre-existing notion of how this spot works and it just doesn't work like that in reality. You're not doing any disservice, Matt. I think you're, you're being too hard on the way the conversation's going. If you're making one mistake or if you have one misconception i would say it's the degree to which a data-driven strategy takes the human element out of the game i would say it is the most human encounter you can have with the game it's one of the reasons i'm so passionate about the game and always was is because it provoked very profound investigation into my personal biases and when i finally had something measurable to reflect my biases against to your point it didn't just help me in poker it helped me in life and i began to see holy fucking shit this is my archetype this is the way that i distort reality i have these tendencies and i also now have the ability to adjust and see reality clearly that is the empowering part yeah. of this game for many people and that it, really speaks to me like the idea that somebody can learn so much about themselves through this game and use it as a vehicle to improve the rest of their life that can be pretty impactful yeah i agree with that wholeheartedly and i i've experienced that personally as well as with students and i guess that's that was my ultimate pushback is i don't think it's simply limited to uh having greater oversight i think that there are a lot of people who carry a nine to five and work 3,000 hours in a grueling job that spend 500 hours in this game, but the little time that they spend here and the few hours that they spend studying open up a whole host of different ways through which they think and the way they strategize, even if it's not anywhere close to the level of accuracy of being data-driven. Yeah, now I guess part of the argument would be you don't need data-driven strategies to arrive at this conclusion for yourself in poker or outside of it. Um, but it does seem like it will assist in the process of getting there. For some, for others, they'll say, not for me, right? Yeah, like sure. the, the, the second that you present them with an accounting problem, they're just going to say like, I'm, I'm out. Not to distill this down to something. No, but it's, yeah, it's true. There really are two paths. The way I see it, there is the instinctual path and the data-driven path. And 
certain people would rather explore a more instinctual path. Many people who think they are on a data-driven path by using solvers are actually not accountable to any type of data-driven feedback. Right. I, I think that that's really an important distinction to make. And I think that that's why this is such an important conversation to have as a whole, because we're at that point now where the cat is out of the bag. We're starting to get some, some sight over what large samples actually look like. We're able to compare that now to theoretically equilibrium strategies, and we're able to progress forward. I, I, I think I was coming from the vantage point of what does that look like 10 years from now? Right. It's not about now, because I agree with you, there's still so much human element involved. But what happens when AI continues to advance, when we're able to just run these through so many filters that it really is just about an engineer pressing a button and getting spat back, you know, some sort of uh, pretty objective feedback that, that tells you how to play the game. If we could go back in time and prevent the creation of HUDs, assuming we're calling that, you know, the moment where the apple fell from yeah i mean it was a very significant technological improvement that helped for people sure. study right for sure so if that was the moment and we had a choice to go back in time and erase it from history poker would have remained a largely instinctual game the longevity of it at least online probably would have increased you know maybe infinitely certainly exponentially yeah yeah until the empaths took over the world and they basically forced everybody else out because they're soul reading and white magic and all of that. But where we are with cat out of the bag is a situation where we have most likely shortened the time horizon of online poker in service of, I would say, truth. Yeah, I'm not convinced that the, the lifespan... Okay, it, it makes sense that in the relative comparison that it's, it's shortened the lifespan. It's not doesn't seem abundantly clear to me that it just means that it's going down though it's not clear to me either and i don't want to cast that frame but i do think and this is a statement against interest in terms of what we need to be very careful of with the popularization of mda is that we do not force fish recreational players to lose at an overwhelming rate i do believe that will be a bad situation for everyone and unless we find a way to shear instead of skin, we may be shooting ourselves in the foot in service of truth. Well, I think the democratization of data might be a good first step. Like, does the rising tide lift all ships or boats, or does it not? You mean if the bottom third gain access to the type of tools that the upper yeah. two-thirds are using? Yeah, like if Wizard sure. became a mass data analysis lookup tomorrow. My gut says maybe, but I think what would happen is you're going to encounter all of the logistical and mindset constraints that keep those players in the bottom third to begin with. Sure, but then at least we're on equal footing, right? Sure, if that makes you feel better it about exploiting, does. About I, I, exploiting I, people who are fundamentally less conscious, because that's really what this is about. The bottom third thinks less clearly. Their brains don't work as well. At mm. least not in this environment. Yeah, that's the key, right? That's Their the brains key. do not think probabilistically. And they probably don't have a high risk tolerance, whether or not you want to call that a brain thing or a nervous system thing. Yeah, I mean, they might have bad pattern recognition. Like, obviously, there's very intelligent people who don't succeed at poker for a variety Absolutely. of reasons. Absolutely. But for whatever reason, the bottom third does not think clearly in this environment. 
Meaning, if I were to say it structurally to a conscious friend, the way that consciousness refracts through the bottom third's perception sees five cards on the board and two in the hole in a very distorted way. Yeah, it's distorted. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that is ba you basically described why you can have an edge over someone. You see things more clearly. Right. There's something happening. You have an insight. You bet on that insight. And then you basically have an ROI. Yeah, I, I think what we're really talking about is the difference between giving somebody bifocals versus a microscope. And when, you could, when it comes to seeing things more clearly. And in the live environment, I think we have the same discussion occurring. It's starting to happen where data-driven tells, actual data-driven content on live tells is becoming more popular. I mean, there's one main one that's doing it, Blake Eastman, good friend. I think his stuff is revolutionary in that department. Whether or not it will take flight in terms of becoming mainstream, who knows? But the data-driven aspect of the live environment depends on human behavior and being perceptive to it sensitive to things that other people might not be able to describe which also just comes with a natural layer of subjectivity which is protective and i feel like you love that and I, it protects I, the environment i certainly love it too but it yeah. is also its own unique strategic dimension yep. just because yep. it isn't rooted in data does not mean there is not of course. Data point analysis no, of course, of course. occurring there. It's yeah. just occurring at an intuitive it's, level. And, and you're just also going to be always more zoomed out. So like from my perspective, being a, a live guy the majority of my career, you just accept the pain. You just accept the lack of perfect information, of, of full vision over things. What I'm taking from this is that you seem to enjoy that being like the main trait that determines a player's skill is their comfort in confusion and chaos. Do you feel like that's a, a fair assessment? Because I don't think that's wrong in any way. I, just, so, yeah. I see you as someone who's just like much more comfortable in confusion, and I personally think that's one of your biggest strengths. Yeah, I, I think being willing to play in the mud and cut your teeth there, earn the majority of your win rate in that total unknown, like just freestyling, where everybody's kind of on slippery footing. Uh, to me, that's that's like the beauty of this game in a, a personal level. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody, and I'm not saying that there isn't something deeper to pull from this game uh, once we're able to strip the layers away. But for me, like that's that's what drew me to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I really don't think that that gets... Like, I don't know, the more I learn about poker, the more I feel creativity when I play. I agree with that, because you access... You access things that you would never even consider to be okay, right? You you just start yeah. to you start to get permission almost to pull triggers that it you'd rather be ten percent confident than zero confidence, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not looking at it from a stamp a standpoint of permission, but it's more just the doors of perception get opened. I guess that's kind of what you're saying. I guess from my, yeah, from my yeah. perspective, what I'm saying permission is uh, I was able to actually get to a point of quantifying what a true mistake was. And that, in turn, allowed me to give myself permission to make them. Whereas for decades, or the better part of a decade, a mistake was calling and losing. A mistake was raising and getting called. Right, the short-term outcome. Yeah, it was impossible not to take the, the, the negative feedback loop and have it be the first filter that you run things through. Yeah. 
no matter how hard you tried not to, right? Because all you can go off is your subjective data of what you observed. Yeah. And if Ron never has bluffs on the river and you keep fucking calling him, you're the idiot. You know? <laughs> so it's like, uh, it's that weird game of circular logic of at what point has he adjusted, yada, yada, yada. But being able to unlock some equilibrium strategies and seeing like how logically you can deviate off of that based off of this specific player that you're playing with in game. Now, when I say permission to make these errors, it's just like mathematically speaking, you're not doing anything wrong. Yeah, I, I follow. I want to jump back for a minute to the point that you made Nick about like if these data-driven strategies are provably true and people are teaching others things that are contrary to them, is that unethical? I think the answer is no, because your services still exist, right? The participants that decide to pursue. In this hypothetical, yeah. I mean, it's the reality that we're actually living in right now. And I'm not, right. it doesn't bother me in the sense that I understand that the parties who are giving misinformation are probably naive i can give them that benefit of the doubt for not being aware of the data incentives that verifiably exist but i'm wondering what happens when data-driven strategies become more popular even 20 percent more popular you know yeah. in a year or two and it's no longer as easy to hide behind the statement of naivety like well i just didn't know what are we going to see from most mainstream coaches who are pushing specifically exploitative strategy content that is empirically false? For instance, I'll just keep using this one that uh, many, many strategy videos are released on how you should not bluff the fish and fish call too much. Anyone who's dipped their toe into population analysis, the first thing that you find is that there are many, many nodes of the game tree where you should be bluffing fish relentlessly. And this is very counterintuitive. So these coaches who don't know that yet, they're making content in a naive sense, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. How could I? Yeah, sure. But what happens when they become aware? Are they going to pivot? Or are they going to continue to push mi misinformation consciously? At the point where it becomes conscious, it becomes unethical. In my eyes, it yeah. becomes malicious, actually. Maybe a better way of putting it. I like that you used that word off camera earlier. So I'll use that here. In the same way that I think the coach giving, what was his name? Brown? Yeah. Uh, the database. That, that, wasn't, the, the database. that wasn't the coach. Yeah. It was uh, Pinnock that was giving the database to In the paint. same way that the use of that database in that specific instance was malicious in my eyes and yours based on what we talked about earlier. Yeah. I think, it becomes a mo I think it becomes malicious for a coach to continue to push strategy content, whether they're monetizing off it directly or indirectly, that is empirically false based on an overwhelming amount of evidence that now exists. The moment they become conscious of that is the moment where they have a new responsibility to adjust their voice, specifically for people with platforms. I just feel strongly about that. I don't, I don't know how I would ever feel differently. And I think it's partly influenced by my past and the experience I had being a victim of misinformation. Mm -hmm. But it's also just uh, my interest in truth at this point in my life. I truly believe that sound information should be available. I really do believe that as well. And I feel like the repercussions of that are 
sort of all of ours to bear collectively in a way. Like I, I don't know, it's, it's very hard for me to come to grips with the suppression of information being better than the, the release of it in a general sense. And I feel like that this situation doesn't have enough going on to where uh, it's making me reconsider that stance. I guess I'm just bringing this topic up when I brought it up. Yeah. It was as a consideration of the ramifications of not validating data-driven strategies. Yeah, you, you no, are, I, I follow. And so I, I feel that the realities where we don't go forward with you know, free data-driven information end up actually being far worse, but it might just be my bias of you know, really hating the experience of being on the other end of that. And I'm speaking to a collection of the viewers who are probably, you know, steeped in that level of suffering. I'm very connected to that still. It's almost palpable to me with how many poker players I talk to who just have broken strategic frameworks and every day they're using the same broken map, wondering why they're getting the same results. And it's because they believed some guy who was preaching some exploitative information that's just empirically false. That bothers me. Yeah. I think we've iterated off of that a lot. I hate to keep using that word, but it's really tough not to go back to the landscape of like 2013, uh, even earlier, like 2009, and see the first iterations of card runners, which then, you know, became, uh, what was Phil's first site? Bluefire, was it? I think that was one even before that. If, if you're trying yeah. to say that we've come a long way with misinformation, then I would say that's only your ignorance to the data that causes you to take that position because I don't think it's okay that in 2023 professional poker players who are making strategy content do not know how to fundamentally exploit a fish. I don't think that's okay. Well, I think that is the most basic strategy advice that we should have figured out right now. And if you don't know that, you literally cannot succeed at poker. That's, that's profound. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think you need data-driven strategies to understand that, though. I think you benefit from it. I'm sure, I'm sure you benefit. I mean, you're kind of living proof of that, right? And I hope you guys are, you know, not folding too much versus recreational players, but there certainly are many, many players. The majority of players who are struggling are making that specific mistake. And they're doing it because they're being advised to, not because they want to. Not necessarily because their instincts told them to do it. They watched a video that says either don't bluff fish or make sure you only call the fish down with top pair in the spot because you want to wait for really good hands before you stack off against a fish. But like you're talking, you're talking the lowest of the low content out there, right? Like I'm we not talking about the lowest of the low. I'll go on fucking YouTube right now and I'll scroll for 10 seconds and I will find a mainstream video that is sure. advising the opposite strategy that you should play. Sure, but you'll find, you'll find 10 that won't. Like you'll find a finding no, you equilibrium won't. video. No, you won't. You'll find- No, you won't. And that's where you need to walk it back because I've done the research and the majority of mainstream content is pushing incorrect, exploitative- But when you're talking mainstream, are you talking like vloggers or are you talking like people who are actually putting out well-studied content, utilizing solver strategies and you know, encouraging people to study their, on their own with tools? Because if you're looking at like guys like two cards, two confidence, finding equilibrium, 
no, you know, people I'm that talking are, about the majority of strategy content available, including people who are using solvers who have not studied population analysis enough to know that fish are exploitable in certain ways. And they are intentionally advocating, albeit potentially naively, they are explicitly advocating for incorrect strategic adjustments versus these players that if you follow, you will destroy your win rate. And that is not me cherry picking out of whoever the fuck you just said. That is the baseline of strategy content right now. It is not easy to hear. It's not a satisfying thing to even say. I've been in this industry 10 years, but we are in a caveman state when it comes to strategic content still mainstream. There are multiple data-driven companies that are doing great work. We are the clear, clear minority. Less than 10% of players have access to this information. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't even aware of how much data aggregation there was. Like, I knew you guys were doing it because I'd talked to you before. I was kind of floored by how many other people are doing it. So obviously, I'm not that well-versed on this. The only reason that I'm being pushy there is because I don't want this minimized. I've done the research. It's a very overwhelming amount of misinformation. Yeah. And it's even, it's even being pushed by people who are well-studied in solvers because solvers do not prevent you from making this mistake. They'll show you how to play balanced against players, sure, and that's fine, you'll save some money. You won't be on the opposite end of what you should be doing strategically. I'm talking specifically but, but I about- that, I think that's a lot, a lot of the people consuming. They're the fish. They're the ones who are losing the money in these notes. No, so, you're, no, you're just doing that weird thing that you do when you, move, when you move off topic. I'm talking about regs who are trying to get better, and they are but why buying... But why are you cherry-picking such a small subset? Regs? Yeah. I'm talking about the bottom third. I'm talking about even anything except the top 10% who are already aligned with data-driven strategies have many, many blind spots to the way the population actually performs in practice. Many of them think that the correct exploitative play is the exact opposite action of what you should take in a mixed strategy spot. I guess I'm not, I, I think that's like well beyond the, the fold of entering study. And I see most of this content as being geared towards people who are trying to enter the, the realm of study. So in my mind, the vast majority of the people consuming content are not regs. I think very few regs consume. I mean, I'm a part of like many discords that I just lurk that are full of thousands of online regs from 50 NL all the way up. None of them watch any of that content. Any like, of the content available that is not data-driven strategies? Think none, about what none you're of, saying. None right? of them are members of Upswing or Solve for Why or PokerCoaching.com. None of them are I'm not posting. Only, I'm not only talking about those forums no i understand but i'm saying like none of them are sharing uh you know youtube videos made by content creators like they're having discussions amongst each other they're sharing databases amongst each other they're you yes, know and, and even if you're not subscribed to a coach who's pushing misinformation the point i'm trying to make is that the damage has already been done because the, the collective paradigm has already been set to religiously defend these biases yeah i guess i just don't think that that's unethical um if you're, you're you're basically referring to i think it's fair to call it a collective delusion that a reasonable assessment 
and don't get me wrong i don't think it's i don't think it's unethical that it occurred if it occurred out of naivety the only reason i'm bringing sure. it up is what happens when more people see conversations like this from industry leading data driven companies that are saying you're getting literal misinformation in nodes that are extremely impactful for your win rate well presumably people will change you would think so yeah and then we come closer to this iteration you were trying to get us to where it's what happens to online poker when that starts to happen and, I, and what happens to the mainstream content does it all pivot towards data-driven content maybe i i think the decision is largely in the hands of the operators because they're the ones who are going to you know put the handcuffs on or keep them off uh to decide how they want to approach the future of data-driven strategies data mining generally um but we certainly should have a say in it and i think like yeah it's sweet to discuss this stuff all right, this can go on for quite a long period of time. I would actually love Indeed to. <laughs> I would actually love to do this again with uh, perhaps another topic. I think we glossed over a lot of glaring issues that MDA pales by comparison to ghosting, collusion, RTA. I think we kind of all agree those are just not accepted, though. I think we understand yeah. where the line is drawn, but as far as you know, the the industry as a whole being taken advantage of by them. I think that there are still more shoes to drop. Yeah, and you, you know. should get new voices on. Like, I know that, you know, I only have my perspective. Well, you'd be shocked, Chewie. People aren't very quick to volunteer. I don't see anybody in this hot seat talking about how everybody's doing it, so they're going to do it, too. Yeah, that's fair. You know, I put I put the call out there. I asked operators to come on and give us an idea of, like, how MDA is potentially impacting security. Crickets, man. Crickets. Nobody really wants to talk about the 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 getting your hands dirty part it's an elephant in the room ain't it to some degree it is so part two part two perhaps uh i really enjoyed this i'd like to do this more frequently whether yeah. it's with you two and others whether it's just with you two i don't really care but i i think this was a fun respectful conversation where we were able to peel back a lot of layers so i hope you guys all enjoyed it as well don't forget to head over to uh our sponsor of the week head on over to up oh my god i almost said the worst thing <laughs> in the world underdogfantasy.com hit hashtag underdog in the chat it'll give you the link don't forget to use sign up code s for y for a full double up up to a hundred dollars uh thank you guys so much for tuning in we'll be back monday with the one and only jeff platt he's going to be here in studio i'm going to be calling in remotely from utah so i'll be off location all week looking forward to it nick chewy Thank you guys so much. Always Thank appreciate you. your voices. Thanks, uh, we'll see you guys next week.